To some, a hero is a person who throws or catches a pass to win a football game, or an athlete who sets a world record, or even a fictional character wearing a spandex suit and a cape. But the classical definition of a hero is a person who puts him or herself at risk to benefit another. That certainly describes those in our military who put themselves in harm's way to rescue and treat their fallen comrades. I'm Oliver North, and in this War Stories podcast, you'll hear from my heroes, the medics, corpsmen, doctors, and nurses who place themselves at risk to save the lives of their fellow warriors. For me, this podcast is very special. You see, it's unlikely I'd be alive today, but for the U.S. Navy corpsmen who rushed to my aid when I was wounded in Vietnam. But for the establishment of the Army Nurse Corps in February 1901 and the subsequent designation of battlefield medics and corpsmen, there are tens of thousands of us who might well have died for lack of immediate medical care. Listen carefully as an incredibly brave World War II U.S. Army nurse describes what it was like to be captured by the Japanese and how she helped others survive nearly three years as a prisoner of war. If you're moved by the testimony of a U.S. Army nurse who served in a real mash during the Korean War, good. That means your heart still works. But be forewarned, your heart may stop when you hear the real cockpit recordings of the brutal gunfights that led to a Medal of Honor for dust-off pilot Patrick Brady. Brady rescued more than 50 injured Americans, despite being shot down three times. These amazing tales of battlefield bravery will move and inspire you. They also demonstrate why the men and women serving in our armed forces today confidently put their lives in the hands of these courageous warriors of medicine. I'm Oliver North, and welcome to War Stories. With war, inevitably come casualties. Tonight, we focus our War Stories cameras on the brave men and women who care for those of us who get wounded on the battlefield. These are the warriors of military medicine. They're the medics, corpsmen, nurses, and doctors who often risk their own lives to save the lives of others. I'm here tonight because a Navy corpsman braved enemy fire to save my life in Vietnam. We're here at the National Museum of Health and Medicine at Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C. It's a place where some of the best medicine in the world is practiced. We've come a long way since leeches were part of treating sick and wounded troops. Today, it's high-tech surgery, usually within minutes of being wounded, that saves the lives of countless soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. But no matter how good medical science gets, in the end, it always comes back to the basics. Training someone who is willing to brave enemy fire when an American is wounded on the battlefield. Someone whose eyes may be the last you gaze into. Someone who can save your life. This is the battlefield, the place where throughout history, Weapons of war have always killed and maimed the young and the brave. But this hell would become a place of hope, where those felled by enemy fire could count on medical assistance being just minutes away. This is the health in which today's nearly 1.4 million men and women of our armed forces stake their lives on every day. But it wasn't always this way. 
18th century medicine, of course, it wasn't very good. Dale Smith holds a Ph.D. in the history of medicine. He's chairman of the medical history department at the Uniformed Services University in Bethesda, Maryland. He knows battlefield medicine from A to Z. If a soldier was wounded in the, in the Revolutionary War, what kind of medical treatment was available to him if he had a, a, a ball from a British musket in him? What you frequently got was rough and ready exploration, crude amputations, a lot of what we would say were infections. They, of course, had no germ theory. Few doctors had anatomical training. Little was known beyond basic bandaging. Leeches were used to bleed the patient to health. It's not really a crazy idea. They're a well-designed beast, but it would have reduced the pressure because of reducing the fluid and the pus would not hurt as much. But leeches didn't save lives or prevent infection. Four out of 10 patients died. Three times as many people would die of infectious disease as would die of enemy action in the war. More physicians died of disease in the revolution than line officers were killed in battle. Being sick was, was a bad thing, even for the doctor. One of the biggest killers was smallpox, but under one famous general, the Continental Army became part of medical history. There was an 18th century medical procedure called variolation. George Washington at Valley Forge ordered the whole of the Continental Line variolated so that his army would never again be sick with smallpox. The deliberate acquiring of smallpox through an incision in the skin. So you got a very mild infection. And Washington had a healthy army in the latter part of the war. By the War of 1812, the entire army and navy were vaccinated. This ushered in an era of keeping American troops healthy through vaccinations. The army would forever lead medical advances through example. By the 1850s, women began to enter the battlefield equation in Europe. 34-year-old Florence Nightingale was shocked by the filth and deplorable conditions she found in hospitals treating the wounded in the Crimean War. Still wearing their gore-encrusted uniforms, five out of six soldiers died of typhus, cholera, or dysentery. She led a crusade for hygiene, as did Clara Barton, who had later found the Red Cross. Does the lesson of Florence Nightingale cross the Atlantic and become something that we want to replicate? We're very concerned about our general hospitals in the Civil War. And Nightingale nurses are beginning to establish nursing schools in America. You only have to think about walking across a field into cannon firing grape shot to realize that war has gotten uglier by the 1860s. Bloodiest single day in American history is at a battlefield just outside of Washington. Some people call it Sharpsburg, others say Antietam, depending on which side you were on. What was unique about that battle? Part of it is the weapons of the Civil War increased the killed in action rate because they were much more lethal. Over a scant 12 hours, 30,000 troops from the Confederate and Union armies became casualties. Nearly 4,800 of them died during the fighting, and 3,700 more succumbed to wounds and infection. But in military medicine, it's always a great battle because it's there for the first time that a system that we call the Letterman system, the organized system of medical care, is put into effect. And so instead of every wounded man taking five or six people off the battle line, Letterman puts people in to remove the people. So the rest of the soldiers stay and fight. 37-year-old Jonathan Letterman was a Union surgeon from Pennsylvania. His system not only evaluated patients, but doctors as well. He says, some of you are good at surgery, and 
Some of you aren't so good at surgery. The doctors are chosen for the particular stage of activity. The guy gets off the battlefield quicker and is taken to a known place of assembly, a field hospital, where he's given over to a surgeon who can decide what's wrong with him. Does he need immediate attention? Can he wait? This is the kind of sorting that we will learn to call triage in the 20th century. They have the idea, but they don't have the word yet. It's a brilliant system. It is now used by every army in the world. One out of five soldiers died in Civil War hospitals, which were mainly tent compounds. While amputation was a standard treatment, anesthesia was not. Uh, they didn't want to use anesthesia because it dulled the pain, and the pain was the body's natural response, and it helped you get well. And so uh, a good, strong soldier shouldn't need anesthesia. He should endure the pain because it was good for you. Um, by the end of the Civil War, Letterman made anesthesia available and ordered people to use it. Nursing was still a man's job in the Civil War, outnumbering the women three to one. Poet Walt Whitman did some of his best writing while serving as an army nurse. But 2,000 women from the North and the South did volunteer and improved camp conditions. Civil War is also the scene of the first woman to receive the Medal of Honor. What did she get it for? She was a civilian working for the Army Medical Department. The Medal of Honor was the only medal in the Civil War. So what did she do? Nobody made a record. Her name was Mary Walker, and at 30, she was hired as a contract surgeon for the Union Army. Mary wore men's clothing on the battlefield while tending the troops. Some believe she also worked as a spy, which earned her four months in a Confederate prison. The dispatches that come back say she served valiantly. The controversy, if you will, is she was not really in the Army, and there has always been a tension about awarding civilians medals even if they do heroic things. She certainly provides inspiration to women in the military in today's world. Between 1860 and the turn of the century, modern medicine as we know it came into existence. Bacteria was now known to cause infections. By 1880, doctors and nurses were wearing white gowns and practicing aseptic surgery. But by the time World War I started in 1914, there were new ways for mankind to annihilate each other. Machine guns mowed down troops, and from the sky, airplanes became weapons. And the Germans brought a new kind of hell to the front lines, poison gas. Particularly terrifying was mustard gas, a blistering agent. Its ability to penetrate anything, including masks and clothing, left some 4,000 victims to choke to death and another 16,000 wounded or permanently disabled. Doc, in, in, in World War I, how long did it take a casualty who's been wounded on the battlefield to be in a surgery? The idea of the golden six hours, that it took six hours from the time you made a wound and it got contaminated for that wound to become septic, for the bacteria to get out of the wound and go through the body. So what the system in World War I tries to do is get a wounded man to the surgeon within six hours. In 1914, they can't do it. But slowly, system gets put together. Motor ambulances are invented, rail is used. Still a lot of prime mover has four legs. By the end of the war, the warriors of medicine had been taught new lessons. Blood transfusion and surgery had been brought to the front lines. 
And for the first time in American military history, more people died of enemy action than disease. When we come back, meet two army nurses, one who was captured by the Japanese and still did her job, and a MASH nurse from the Korean War. Their tales from the front lines of medicine when War Stories returns. The beginning of the Blitzkrieg, the Lightning War, an army that is literally a war machine in a series of machine-like drives. World War II exploded in 1939 when the Germans invaded Poland. Stateside, America wasn't yet involved, but every branch of the military was busy training men and women to treat their own. By 1941, 200,000 were enrolled in medical training. The Army and Army Air Corps had their own doctors, dentists, nurses, and medics, while sailors and Marines received medical treatment from Navy doctors, nurses, and corpsmen. And like the rest of our military at that time, all medical personnel were segregated. Most black troops were taken care of by black medics, nurses, and corpsmen. Medics carried life-saving plasma into the field. Sulfa drugs and penicillin were introduced by 1943, and the payoff was huge. Mortality rates plummeted. By World War II, if you're wounded on the battlefield and you can make it back to an aid station, you stand about a 95 to 97 percent chance of surviving. Exactly. The uh, progress has been phenomenal. If you get wounded, you stand this improved chance to survive once you're in the hands of medicine. One of the people who wanted to lend a hand was 26-year-old Hattie Brantley of Jefferson, Texas. Early in my life, I determined to be a nurse. So I read a, an article about the nursing frontier nursing service in Kentucky. Hattie was intrigued by what she read, but medicine wasn't the only allure. And it just stirred my heart because these nurses rode horses. Well, I wanted to ride a horse. If I could be a nurse and ride a horse, it would just be ideal. So I thought, well, I'm going to be a nurse and see the world. After attending nursing school and working in a hospital, Hattie joined the Army. After two years at Fort Sam Houston, Hattie's chance to see the world finally came. We could go overseas after two years duty, and um, they gave us a sign-up sheet to say where we would like to go. Well, uh, I selected the Philippines because there were some of the older nurses who had been to the Philippines and they would talk about what a wonderful place it was, you know, and I thought, well, if I go to the Philippines, I will see Hawaii on the way. In the summer of 1941, Hattie got her wish and was sent to Fort McKinley outside Manila. It was a plum assignment for her and 99 other Army and Navy nurses. We had Chinese houseboys to, to care, took care of some weight for us and they did our laundry, they did everything, they cleaned our house and made our beds, they did everything for us. But all that changed on December 7th when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and a few hours later, the Philippines. And every time the bombers would be coming, well, the patients would yell at me, get under the desk, get under the desk. Well, I couldn't get under that desk. Leave them. They couldn't get under the desk. Her refusal to abandon her patients may have saved her life. This bomb fell on that desk where I would have been under it if I'd ever gotten under it, which I wasn't going to anyway. And uh, we never did know how many patients were killed. As the Japanese overwhelmed the American and Filipino troops, Hattie and the other nurses were moved to the Bataan Peninsula. They quickly set up field hospitals. And we were out there doing our duty, and we had plenty of casualties to take care of, and we were doing extreme nursing care. So there wasn't any time for thinking. 
the line was falling back. The Japanese were coming down the peninsula. We had fear. We did the surgery and took care of the resuscitation, and then as soon as, and sometimes before they could be moved, we moved them. Well, the Japanese army was relentless, and they cut off the Bataan Peninsula. After nearly four months of holding out, the nurses were sent to work in the hospital tunnels on Corregidor, MacArthur's headquarters in Manila Bay. We looked like something no self-respecting cat would watch a mouse hole for. We were horrible, thin and dirty. I mean, dirty, but we're running out of any kind of medicine we were running. And of course, in those days, they used chloroform and ether for anesthetic. Surgery was done with a minimum of whatever was available. We were just working under such hardships that uh, creature comforts didn't mean much. You didn't think about what you were giving up. You were thinking about the situation and the, the terrible injuries and the loss of the patients. None of the nurses or troops knew the U.S. was planning to surrender, but on April 9th, it happened. A month later, Hattie and the remaining 77 nurses were turned over to the Japanese. These captured war films show how the women were forced to pose for pictures before being sent to prison. I was in Santa Tomas two years, nine months, 28 days, and 12 hours, living without freedom. We were told to stay with our patients and continue our work. And of course, we would have done it without being told. Things had gone from bad to worse. Our supplies were less, fewer. Our food was cut. Our rations were cut. We were on 500-calorie diet. We never had enough to eat. Hattie Brantley and the rest of the nurses were released in February 1945. Some were put on tour as heroines. Hattie continued her distinguished military nursing career for another 30 years. I wanted to be a nurse. I wanted to be at the bedside. And I stuck to it. Thank goodness. How we came to count on the chopper for rescue when minutes matter most. Next on War Stories. In the blistering summer of 1950, Soviet-backed North Koreans invaded South Korea, drawing the United States into yet another war. But this time, military medicine had a new weapon in its arsenal, the MASH unit. How was it really in the Korean War? You had a new hospital, the Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. It's 60 beds, trained surgeons, good nurses, nurse anesthesiologists all packaged and ready to go. One of those good nurses was Cleveland's 29-year-old Ruth Flanders, who was finishing up a stint in the Army Reserves. She shipped out as an operating room nurse to Chorwan, Korea. There, in a MASH unit close to the front lines, she quickly discovered that it was a very moving experience. But I believe it moved about 29 times, the unit that I was with. If one location was too dangerous, they would send us back, or whichever uh, was the most convenient and the safest. The brutal carnage she witnessed was too much for some of the nurses who transferred out. We had one nurse, but she was very young in our unit. It could, just couldn't take it. She just uh, she couldn't get her work done, and she she just uh, just rolled up into herself. And so they they uh, evacuated her. They try, I guess, to get the older nurses because it was so many severe injuries and so much maiming that it really does affect you. But Ruth and her unit lived by one clear goal. To keep them alive, that's what, that's what the MASH would do. The surgery was uh, primitive 
and that everything was made from gas generators. I was the shortest one, and so the Korean carpenters built me a little stool, so I would always stand on my stool. We did as much as we could, then we'd send them on down the line. I've worked 16, 18 hours. You stay there until someone could relieve you. That was it. Most everyone had something to drink in their foxhole. I used to keep my beer in my foxhole because it was deep. It was hard to get out of. Korea in December 1950. Looks cold, don't it? Colder than the heart of a comic. Well, maybe that's exaggerating. It's only 17 below. The climate in Korea was frequently unbearable, with bone-chilling winters and hot, rain-soaked summers. At a certain temperature, you can't operate, but also your fingers wouldn't work. They were too stiff. Space heaters were not adequate enough, and it was too dangerous for the patient to be uh, the cold because they would go into shock. The rainy season came around in July and August, and that was really, that was more depressing than the cold. It's hard to keep anything dry. I used to wear my socks under in my shirt to keep them dry. With few roads in the rocky terrain, evacuating the wounded was slow going. The Marines wanted a faster way of getting their men back to the hospitals, and the answer came from the skies. A Navy doctor, Joel Boone, he sees the helicopter and understands its virtue based on his experience with the Corps. And so he gets on one, and he has it fly him from the battle lines out to the hospital ship, where he slides down the cable from the helicopter to the ship to show you can get patients evacuated by helicopters. They pick them up uh, and just within a few minutes, sometimes if they're that close, 10 or 15 minutes, we'd have them already. The earliest ones used baskets on the outside skids to put the patients in. Well, you're flying along and the bugs are hitting the patients and so on, so they put covers over the baskets. Well, the first covers they put were solid metal. It protects the patient, but you feel like you've been put in a casket prematurely, and it scared patients. So they cut out little windows in the top, and eventually they would make them out of plexiglass. The helicopter's role as an aerial ambulance was just beginning. Call sign dustoff. When we come back, the story of a rescue under fire. An army helicopter pilot and medic risked their lives to save their wounded comrades. It's the stuff of legends when war stories continue. graphic indictment of the moral bankruptcy of communism. Hundreds of families forced to the streets when their homes are sealed because they border West Berlin. 13 August 1961 is when we woke up on a Sunday and there was a wall there. The medics were there to take care of anybody who was hurt along the wall. The fight against communism was getting ugly. From Phillips, South Dakota, 24-year-old Patrick Brady was stationed in Berlin as an army medic. Another dash from the new Red Slave Camp. The worst memory I have of those days <clears throat> in, uh, in Berlin was a training accident where a soldier fell off a tank and the tank ran over his head. And, you know, I, get, I got sick when I looked at movies of needles, for God's sakes, and training here at Fort Sam, I couldn't deal with it. But that in the field, it's different. You see the body in every possible configuration. But it was the Vietnam War that changed Patrick Brady's life 
1963, he was selected for helicopter school and sent to Camp Walters in Texas. A year later, he shipped out to July with the 54th Medical Detachment of the 44th Medical Brigade. It was the first of his two tours of duty and where the dust-off legend was born. If you love me or not, I want you to know. Dust-off control, dust-off control. On nearly 500,000 occasions, those words turned into missions of rescue for a million patients, mostly Americans. The Bird Brady flu, a Huey helicopter, a UH-1H. He just jerked it and it jumped off the ground, took both hands and both feet. And without that bird, we could not have done the things we did in Vietnam. Unprecedented medical care and treatment and life-saving in Vietnam because of that wonderful machine. We had five dust-off aircraft in the country. We covered all of Vietnam with five helicopters. When I got to Vietnam, there were about 16,000 Americans there. Almost all our work was with uh, Vietnamese casualties. The first year, that those five aircraft, we carried a little over 4,000 patients. But dust-off almost didn't happen. In the beginning, Army politics nearly killed it. But one man had a vision. Now, when I came to Vietnam in January of 1964, I meet Charles Kelly. Charles Kelly uh, was a veteran of three wars. He'd been court-martialed, I think, three times. Probably the greatest man that I've ever known, truly great person. Some people, they called him Madman Kelly, in fact. Kelly believed that dedicated Hueys should be used as air ambulances to bring the wounded to field hospitals. But a visiting commander wanted to take one of the precious birds away from the team. Because we have this beautiful helicopter, the commander wants that bird for his own uses. He wants to put a portable red cross on it and use it for logistics. The two of them used to fight like cats and dogs. So Kelly says, the only way we'll keep this resource is to prove that we can do this job better than no one else. So we began to fly at night. We flew in weather. We made pickups on the battlefield. We did things that no other aircraft in Vietnam did or could do. And Charles Kelly paid the ultimate price for dust off. Kelly's called out on a mission. And it's a secure area supposedly secure area, and they start receiving fire. So the people on the ground started to shell, shout at Kelly, get out, get out, we're drawing fire. And Kelly said, not until I have your wounded. Now that was the last words he said. A bullet came through the open door right through his heart and killed him on the spot. I don't know how to, to put it, probably the most fruitful battlefield death ever because his death saved dust off. Dustoff was the greatest lifesaver in the history of warfare, rescued over a million, somewhere around a million people in the Vietnam War because of Charles Kelly. Patrick Brady's dust-off call sign was 55, or double nickel. As soon as the mission came in, the guy in operations hit the buzzer. Now, the buzzer was a, was a Jeep horn hooked to a battery. So, boom, went off once. Uh, the aircraft commander ran to the operations shack. Nobody walked. Got the mission sheet, told him exactly where to go and what the deal was. In the meantime, the co-pilot is in the aircraft. He runs to the flight line and he cranks the bird. We're off the ground in two minutes and we're en route to the patient. Call him immediately to let him know that you're on the way because it's a great comfort them to them to know that you're on the way and that the wounded buddy's going to get taken care of.
I should say too that that while the life saving was wonderful, we suffered a lot of casualties. The odds of a dust off pilot uh, being hurt in his work were about one in three. It was the most dangerous kind of flying in Vietnam. Aboard Brady's Huey, there was also a co-pilot, crew chief, and a medic. From tiny Wellsburg, Iowa, Steve Hook was all of 22 years old when he joined Brady's team at the 54th. It was 1966, and the team now had six Hueys to bring in the wounded. You're the medic aboard. You've got a crew chief. Also, is, there's no door on a gun on that. Is no. There, is there a red cross on the side of it? Oh, yeah, the one on each side, on the top, underneath, in the front. Beautiful targets. Now, of course, the enemy doesn't shoot at that Red Cross, do they? <laughs> Beautiful target. I heard a rumor one time that there was a reward for, for medics. If they put a, a dust-off helicopter down, there was a reward for them. How long was it before those helicopters started coming back with bullet holes in them and RPG fragments in them and things like that? I think we had all six of them shot up the same day. Uh, we used to call it Black Friday. Then came September 29, 1966, just another one of Patrick Brady's 2,000 combat missions. The call was to rescue 11 American soldiers in a secure area. Well, they misjudged the security of the area because as we were sitting down, uh, two uh, enemy soldiers came up out of spider traps on each side of the aircraft, shot my crew chief, and shot Hook. And I pushed the aircraft in the keyhole, and I could see my crew chief's hanging in his harness, and I thought he was dead. And I heard one, one shot, and I heard the second shot as I was falling backwards into the cargo area. <clears throat> I thought my arm was gone, it burned, you know. But as I laid there, my hand was on my, on my lap, and so I wiggled my finger, so I thought, well, it's still attached. So I just kind of tucked it between my legs and just kind of looked around, and a lot of thoughts come through my mind in, that, in about three seconds. But the main one was, is if we don't do what we came for, we're going to have to come back. You're badly wounded. You, you still, in spite of your own wounds, went out and rushed across that battlefield to save the lives of, of other soldiers. Some people would say that, that you really rose above and beyond the call of duty. I crawled out of the helicopter and there was a bomb crater or artillery hole. And I saw some wounded guys in there and I headed for it. So. I'm looking around for Hook, and here he is, back and forth across the battlefield, dragging the patients to the aircraft. Finally, he gets all 11 of them on board, and, and of course, I can see his back is bleeding all over his back. So he gets in the aircraft, and here's 11 bodies stacked in the back, and he's going through the bodies. He sees the crew chief in the harness, and he saw some spurts of blood, and he knew he was still alive. That's why I applied a tourniquet, and... In my haste with everything, I must have drew it down a little bit too tight. And all of a sudden, he sat up and looked at me and said, Ow! So I backed it off a turn, and I could feel blood dripping off my elbow. But he isn't treating his own wound. He's treating the patients. So I reach back, and I shake one of the patients like this. The soldier then takes out his first aid pack and goes up and, and jams it in the back of uh, Hook's arm uh, to stop the bleeding, while Hook continues to treat the patients. Steve Hook was awarded the Silver Star and returned to action where he'd be wounded again. Coming up, Patrick Brady receives our nation's highest award for valor, the Medal of Honor. War Stories continues with me, Oliver North, on Fox News Channel.
1968, while Americans back home protested the Vietnam War, now Major Patrick Brady had more pressing problems in his second dust-off tour. He had 37 green pilots and a deadly change in terrain. This time we're not in the Delta, we're in the mountains. Most of the pilots who were killed in Vietnam were killed because of weather or terrain, not enemy action. In the mornings you had a, a low valley fog that come up about five or 600 feet and covered the valleys. In the fighting, if the fighting was in that, you had a problem. In the afternoon you had clouds that covered the tops of the mountains. Everybody in the unit except me the commander and the first sergeant are brand new. 37 guys, every pilot graduated from flight school on the same day. All their names started with S, inexperienced to say the least. As the war dragged into its fourth year, life at the 54th at Chulai was a steady stream of non-stop wounded. The most I ever carried one day was 125. You know, we carry 4,000 patients a month. On a daily basis, lots of our pilots carried 50. Dustoff flew them in, and surgeons like John Hutton began putting shattered bodies back together even while they were still in the helicopters. The corpsman was a very accurate reporter. He would tell us how many were extremity injuries, how many were chest, abdomen, or, or head injuries. So we, we would start triaging them as they were on en route. We had a hard time sometimes disciplining to land one at a time, because if they landed two at a time, very often, it would lead to a, a rush to see who could get to the emergency room first. The pressures were enormous. Nearly everyone on dust-off had a lucky charm or a ritual. We had uh, one guy that uh, I don't think ever changed uh, his T-shirt. You know, you did things in a routine way. You, you would get, uh, you would strap yourself in a certain way. You would, uh, uh, you would do, do things exactly in sequence every time and then if something went out of sequence then you would be worried about it. I had a lucky helmet too. Besides a helmet and something he called his 30 caliber medal, faith was most important to Patrick Brady. This thing I've carried ever since then, I have it with me now. On one side I had the picture of my children at the time. They were just little snots. But on the back is, is the prayer which I really carry. Fear is a debilitating thing. It's, it's something that you never want to have anything to do with. Uh, it's something that you send to the enemy. Faith for me was a substitute for my fear. Uh, fear is nothing more than your faith on trial. This is 55. Uh, Roger, Roger, situation down there. How many rounds did you take? On January 6, 1968, Patrick Brady's faith and abilities as a pilot were tested to the limits. Uh, 5-6 control, uh, uh, and we got 5-5 uh, going in a hot LZ in the south, and uh, we believe he's taken somewhere else. You're listening to the only known recording of action that resulted in a Medal of Honor. On this day, each of the three choppers flown by Brady were shot down by enemy fire. Not even this would stop him from rescuing 51 wounded while flying in zero-zero weather. It seemed like we were receiving fire from our left rear as we sat down. I... The valley was completely covered with fog. I start up the mountain, and I'm wondering, how in the heck am I going to get in there? I go IFR, can't see anything, fall off, and break out. Back up the mountain, fall off, break out. And I'm really worried. I thought I was going into the trees. But I could see the tip of the rotor blade 
and I could see the top of the trees. So I know I got two reference points. I know I'm right side up, and that's all I needed. For Major Brady's daring rescue of those wounded, President Nixon presented him with the Medal of Honor, our nation's highest award for valor. That was it. It was just it was just one of those deals where somebody happened to see what was what I did, and they appreciated it, and they wrote it up. Preparing those who will save lives on tomorrow's battlefields, we take you inside a flash and bang exercise next on War Stories. It's 0700 hours at historic Camp Bullis at Fort Sam Houston, Texas. War Day 4 for 91 Bravo Company is just getting started. This is a situational training exercise uh, for our soldiers who are uh, training to be combat medics. Uh, soldiers are given a scenario, uh, they'll, they'll come upon a, um, a mass casualty situation and they'll uh, provide emergency medical treatment and stabilization. Just relax, relax, relax. What we've done now is take the 91 Bravo uh, combat medic and the 91 Charlie, which are licensed uh, nurse practitioners, they combine them into one medical specialty, which is the 91 Whiskey. It's a more capable medic. He'll have uh, more trauma skills than the uh, basic combat medic. Come on, guys, let's start lining them up. Speed is of the essence. The golden six hours is now cut to one, according to Fort Sam Houston's Major General Kevin Kiley. You've probably heard of the concept of the golden hour. We're now looking at why do soldiers die in the battlefield, and a significant proportion of them die because they bleed to death the first hour after their injury. you got to see them, you got to get to them, and then you got to start resuscitating. In the midst of simulated fire and chaos, these medics are trained to prioritize treatment of the wounded. Do it, do it, don't tell me do it. We try and get them to go through the same scenario every time and treating each life-threatening injury as they get to it as opposed to jumping straight to the wound. And that, that has been our main focus, it's uh, to get them back on track, uh, doing their, their patient casualty survey so that they're not missing anything that could be a, of a detriment to the patient. You can't go nowhere because you don't know where the CCP is yet. Where are you going to move them to? The main thing is get them out of the danger area, which is over to, our, to my front, over to the casualty collector point where treatment is going to be given. The wounded are evacuated to a battalion aid station, with the most severely injured loaded last so they can be offloaded first. Go, 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 go. There, the ABCs are used to reevaluate. Airway, breathing, and circulation. We uh, have the students go through A, which is airway, patent or not. Then we go through breathing, whether or not the breathing is it adequate or inadequate. And C is circulation. And then they're going to go through and do a, uh, a blood sweep, checking for any major bleeding. When the patients get here, they have actually three dispositions. They'll either be returned to duty. Uh, they will be evac to a higher medical facility or they are deceased. Chemical weapons are out there it's a and ready to be used. Traces of anthrax real. have been found in the offices of three members of Congress. Biological and chemical warfare once again making headlines. Back in the 1980s, Saddam Hussein used them against his own people. And in 1990-91, during the Persian Gulf War, our armed forces were prepared for whatever Saddam might throw at them. My experience in the desert 
training medical units, particularly a hospital, to manage chemical casualties uh, was a real eye-opener. There are a whole host of, of uh, both biologic and chemical weapons that are available to terrorists. We talked to all of our medics, doctors and nurses about recognizing and treating blood agents, nerve agents, respiratory agents like mustard. This M256 detector kit helps a soldier from 91 Bravo identify the type of agent being used in this exercise. What we do is we go out and we pop one of our kits and it tells you exactly what's out there. A different color would tell you what kind of agent it is. They'll call up to the headquarters and say we have a blister agent. As America wages war on terrorism, highly trained forward surgical teams are right there with our special operations troops. Special medics and soldier doctors with 10 years of training deploy with our Green Berets and Rangers. As you can see from this, they're well prepared. We need to be prepared for 2010 and 2020. We're going to have broader lines of communication. Soldiers may be isolated for longer periods of time. We're just starting to ramp up to 91 whiskeys. We needed to move towards a medic who had more skills and could provide more on the battlefield, uh, literally at the Foxhole. Stay with me, Oliver North, for more war stories. Troops will always ask me, are we as good as in your day or the greatest generation? And my answer always is, your training is better, you're in better physical shape, you've got better equipment than we ever had. Now how you perform depends on what's inside. We can hum-haw about Vietnam and about Somalia and about other places like that, but this is real and this is at home, and this is personal. And I think that'll bring out the toughness in the American people. But will they be tough when the chips are down? And I think what I see going on in America today, there ain't no doubt about it. Dr. William Taylor, assistant surgeon of the 19th Virginia Regiment during the Battle of Antietam wrote, it was on the battlefield that the assistant surgeon was sternly tested. Whatever he possessed of resource, fortitude, and self-sacrifice, so it is today for the 80,000 men and women currently serving or training in military medicine. To them and their predecessors, we say thanks. Theirs is a war story that deserves to be told. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.